Oh, hi. Uh, my name is Jason Fikes. I'm director of ACU Press. And about 15 or 16 years ago, um, this book, uh, Reclaiming Heritage, uh, came out and no one saw it. Uh, I, I think very few people noticed that this book that pulled together some of Richard's earliest work on our heritage kind of came together. And so I asked Richard to revisit this topic um, in light of our current world of can uh, churches of Christ be saved, which was a headline in a recent Christian Chronicle uh, piece that some of you may have seen. And uh, he's going to talk about that today and how uh, timely this book is because it's more relevant today than it was when you wrote it 15 years ago, I think. So, yeah. Okay. Thanks, Jason. And so I have about 20 copies of it up here for sale, and we have it at the booth. And he's doing a signing for it tonight down at the field house. So don't feel like you have to fight here. If you want to find him at the field house tonight, you can get a copy. I, want to, I was trying to speak up. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. That's a bit. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to do a reading from, yeah. Are there still people outside? Yes. Yeah, they can. We can bring them in. Let's see. Yeah. So I'm going to do a reading today uh, from some of the new material in the book. But before I do the reading, I want to make some just some very preliminary remarks to help you understand what I'm trying to do with this book. Yeah, space here. That, yeah, that's a good space. Perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. That's a good space. So here's some preliminary remarks. Number one, some of the material that you will hear me read today, you will think this is political. I suppose it is political, but not in any conventional sense. I don't in any sense intend to take a Republican position or a Democratic position or a Libertarian position. Socialist is a big word being kicked around today or a socialist position. I want to take a Christian position. So when you hear some of this material, I want you to know where this is coming from. And that's where it's coming from. Number two, I'm not going to say very much the question, can churches of Christ be saved? Well, yes. The answer is, is yes. It is possible. If we have any hope, in my view, for this tradition, though we have some radical work to do, not just tweaking around the edges. And I, I really think that we will find the roots of the kind of work we need to do in Jesus' own vision for what he often called the kingdom of God. And by the way, that's political. Uh, one of my favorite theologians is a, a man named William Stringfellow. And he wrote a wonderful little book, a little tiny book called An Ethic for Christians and Other Aliens in a Strange Land. And his opening line is, the biblical topic is politics. But he doesn't mean conventional politics. He means the kingdom of God is a reality that stands over against every political system. 
over against. It's pretty. We'll talk about this tomorrow. I'm going to deal at length tomorrow with the kingdom of God, but I'm just introducing that for a moment today. Now, a couple more comments. In terms of just to define terms, when I, when I read this, I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. So I say some things in this epilogue about the 18th century enlightenment. The reason I bring that up is our roots as a movement, our deepest roots, New Testament, of course, but beyond that, it, they're in the 18th century enlightenment, uh, the age of reason. Alexander Campbell was born in the late 18th century. His father, Thomas, had him reading John Locke, the great British enlightenment philosopher, right along with the New Testament. And Alexander Campbell, especially Campbell, taught us, and I say us because it's been passed down to us, taught us to read the biblical text through an enlightenment lens. We, we read it through a very scientific, we're looking for facts. Not for the story, but for the facts and for the truth of the facts. That's, been, that's a problem for us. And we'll talk about that. And then the last thing I want to mention, just in way of defining terms, is postmodern. In the 1960s, and I don't know a lot about, I'm not a specialist in postmodernism, but I know enough to say this, that in the 1960s, a movement arose, especially in, in America's universities, where a lot of scholars were really calling into question the Enlightenment. I mean, this nation, the American nation, the, the churches of Christ are grounded in the Enlightenment. So is this nation. We are an Enlightenment-based nation. Think about it. 1776, 18th century. And our, our founders were deeply rooted in the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment means you, you view the world through the lens of reason. You don't view it through emotion. You don't view it through story. You don't view it, view it through your perspective or someone else's. You, in effect, you deny perspective. You're looking for the facts. Some of us may remember, what was that old movie back in years and years ago? Uh, I Led Three Lives, wasn't it? I'm old enough to remember that. And he would say, just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Well, that's, you know, just the, just the facts. Got no, I don't want your prejudice. Just the facts. Well, that's, that's us, right? So the Enlightenment, postmodernism, was, was an effort to say, you know, we never have just the facts. We, we read the world around us through our particular subjectivity. I view the world through the lens of my experience, through who I am, who I've become. My wife, Jan, she views it through where she's come from. And Greg Sterling back here views it through his lens. And we view it, someone from Japan would view the world very differently than I would view the world. That's what postmodernism is insisting. You know, the lights went out. It's, oh, they came back on. Whoa, okay. So, with, with, does that, do, any questions about what I'm trying to communicate here? Is this clear? If, if it's not, please say so, so I can, okay. With that, let me begin to read, and uh, we'll take you through this epilogue, and I think there'll be time at the end. We can have some questions, comments. Uh, you may have brought some 
rotten eggs, <laughs> tomatoes, I don't know. There may be time for that too. Separated in time by a mere 25 months, two crucially important documents appeared in the latter half of the second decade of the 21st century, and both marked seismic changes in America's religious landscape. Both would have been unthinkable in 2002 when the first edition of this book, Reclaiming a Heritage, was published. The first of these documents was Robert P. Jones' book entitled The End of White Christian America. Some of you may know it. If you don't know it, you should get it. Published in 2016, the second was an editorial in the August 29th, 2018 issue of the Christian Chronicle that bore the ominous title, Can Churches of Christ Be Saved? The first, the Jones book, pointed to the deep erosion of white Protestantism that has dominated the United States since the Second Great Awakening in the early 19th century. I mean, we have been a Protestant country for a, in a real sense for a very long time. The second document in the Chronicle pointed to the steep decline that now haunts the churches of Christ. The first document, the book, argued that the white Protestant mainline, by that I mean Presbyterians, United Methodists, Disciples of Christ, United, the more liberal mainline Protestant traditions, that the white Protestant mainline that dominated this nation for a hundred years and more, beginning in the 1870s, the more liberal ecumenical Protestant churches began losing both members and influence during the turbulent years of the 1960s. White evangelical and fundamentalist churches, sensing the decline of the main line, am I speaking loud enough? You hear well? Yep. Most of it. Most of it, okay. <laughs> sensing the decline of the main line, rushed in to fill that void and exerted enormous influence over this nation in the aftermath of the 1960s, as you know. But their influence, too, began to wane in the 21st century, drawing on historic trends and statistical analysis, Jones argued persuasively that by 2016, the handwriting was on the wall. White Protestantism, including evangelicalism, was increasingly becoming a minority and a largely irrelevant voice in the United States. If Jones' argument regarding an evangelical decline strikes you as extreme and wrong-headed, you probably live in a section of the country, as I do, where evangelical churches are still numerous and still very strong. But evangelical Christianity has suffered decline in many regions already. And according to Jones, that decline will likely continue 
even in America's so-called Bible Belt. The article in the Christian Chronicle also recognized the handwriting on the wall. Drawing on the research of Stan Granberg, the Chronicle reported the following very disturbing facts about Churches of Christ. Quote, this fellowship stopped growing in the 1990s and has been in decline since 2000. From 2006 to 2016, about 58 congregations closed each year. Each year. Each year. 58 a year. Average attendance among the nations, 11,965 churches of Christ. The average attendance is 94. And 54% of those congregations average just 34 people in the pews on Sundays. That's pretty distressing. There is one sense in which the erosion of churches of Christ is related to the erosion of white Christian America hardly at all. In the first place, the Chronicle is no doubt correct when it claimed, and I'm quoting again, that churches of Christ have struggled to make the transition from a rural to an urban movement. And that's probably true. But that sociological analysis tells only part, and perhaps the least important part, of the story. The other part of the story, in my judgment, has everything to do with the way we have framed the gospel message. Here is the stunning irony of our tradition. And by the way, if I sound like I'm knocking it, you have to understand this is my tradition. I love it. I was raised in it. You love it too. So I'm just trying to, let's come to terms with, with reality. No one's knocking anything. We're trying to say, here's what we're facing, folks. What do we do about it? So here's the stunning irony of Churches of Christ. While claiming for most of our history to constitute the one true church, we typically failed for most of those years to preach the two themes that stand at the center of the gospel message. Number one, the infinite grace of God, which I seldom heard growing up as a kid. And those of you older relate to this. We didn't hear this. Embodied in the cross. And the, the second, the demand the cross makes on Christians to embody radical discipleship. The cross does not say be good Boy Scouts. It's not it. It's radical discipleship. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Drawing on highly rational patterns of thought made popular 
in the 18th century age of reason, we substituted what we called, what Alexander Campbell called, Bible facts for the cross, legalism for grace, an ecclesiastical blueprint for radical discipleship. But a radically different school of thought emerged in the 1960s. This school of thought, this is the postmodern that I mentioned, this school of thought rejected the Enlightenment with its focus on scientifically verifiable truths and claimed that we always filter truth through our own subjective lens. There is therefore, there is therefore no such thing as totally objective truth. There is your truth and my truth, the truths each of us filter through our subjective ways of viewing the world. We call this perspective postmodernism, that is, a way of viewing the world that is post-enlightenment. Does this make sense? Post-enlightenment. That rejects the Enlightenment's stress on facts and objective truths. It must be obvious that postmodernism rejected the very premise that underpinned the way we had always read the biblical text that the Bible is simply a book of facts and truths which can be known by anyone willing to bring to the text an open mind and a rational spirit. That was the assumption. If you bring to the text an open mind, you will agree with me. Because it's clear, crystal clear. Postmodernism gained widespread popularity in the 1960s, first in America's universities and then in the larger culture. In the context of that development, the Enlightenment fact-based model that we had embraced for reading the biblical text began to lose credibility. At the same time, the prevalence of postmodern thinking implicitly offered, implicitly offered to us, Churches of Christ, an invitation to frame the biblical message less in terms of scientifically verifiable facts and more in terms of narrative. The story of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, which, after all, that is what the Bible is. It's a grand narrative. Had we accepted that invitation, our preaching would have been far more biblical and far more compelling. But for the most part, we did not. And to the extent that we refused to read the biblical text less in terms of scientific facts and more in terms of story, it was inevitable that we would eventually spiral into decline. The question was not if, it was when. Add to that dilemma the identity crisis that began to engulf Churches of Christ during that same turbulent decade, the 1960s. Many young people rejected the way Churches of Christ failed 
to engage the great moral issues of that time. Now let me just issue a parenthetical statement. If you were on some isolated island in the Pacific and all you had at your disposal was a complete run of the Gospel Advocate and the Firm Foundation, okay, and you began reading, say, in, in 1955 or 1954, and you read every article in the Advocate and the Firm Foundation from 54 until 68, the year Martin Luther King was assassinated, you would never know there had even been a freedom movement in this country. That's stunning to me. I mean, that, the, the assumption is the gospel doesn't connect with this stuff. Well, you'd never know. And we simply didn't, for the most part, we didn't take it seriously. So many young people rejected the way churches of Christ failed to reject, failed to engage the great moral issues of the time embodied especially in the civil rights movement and the widespread resistance against our nation's military venture in Vietnam. At the same time, many were turning their backs on the legalism. And if you're as old as I am, you remember all this. Many were turning their backs on the legalism and the sectarianism that had defined our churches for so many years, and many even came during that time to reject the very idea of restoration, which was the core of Church of Christ identity, rejected it as inherently divisive and ethically bankrupt. I mean, I know many people out of that period who took that position. Now, with no story to tell of their own, I should say of our own, we began telling someone else's story. And we grafted ourselves, and we're still grafting, onto the broad evangelical movement that by the 1970s was rapidly gaining influence over the soul of the American nation. One can readily understand why so many in Churches of Christ would have found the broad evangelical movement so compelling. I get it. You get it too. It was conservative. It was in many ways biblically based. And it was growing. We weren't. It was. It was growing by leaps and bounds. Indeed, its advocates had for two centuries and more sought to transform the United States into an explicitly Christian nation, a goal that many in Churches of Christ found appealing. What they failed to grasp, though, is the point that I took pains to explain in another chapter of this book, why genuine restorationists, and I do consider myself a genuine restorationist, why genuine restorationists don't fit and can never fit the evangelical mold. Restorationists are by definition sectarian. At their worst, at their worst, sectarians embrace the notion that they and they alone comprise the one true church. But at their best, 
sectarians are profoundly biblical. At their best, they embrace the radical teachings of Jesus, resisting their culture's dominant values, especially when those values compete, as they inevitably do, with the values of the kingdom of God. We're going to unpack that tomorrow. But we rejected our sectarian roots, the best along with the worst, and we boarded the great evangelical ship that appeared at the time to be sailing the seas of American culture with great success. By the second decade of the 21st century, however, that ship began to sink. The plight of the Southern Baptist Church, the largest evangelical denomination in America, is a case in point. By 2015, that church had lost members for eight years running. In fact, some 200,000 people abandoned Southern Baptist in 2014 alone. So you, you see the trends. I mean, it's happening to us. It's happening. It's you know, if I live in Nashville, and you know, the evangelical world appears to be very successful, but underneath the appearances, you can see these trend lines. But here's the part that may make some of you uncomfortable, and I'm saying again, I speak now not as a Democrat or a Republican, but as a serious what I want to be a serious Christian. So we have all this history leading up to now. And then came 2016 and the election of Donald J. Trump to the presidency of the United States. I do not bring up Trump to make a judgment about which political party holds the greatest promise for the health of the American nation. I bring up Trump because in many respects, in many respects, he stands at the heart of the crisis that engulfs the evangelical world and by extension, those churches of Christ that boarded the evangelical ship only to find it floundering on the rocks of blatant immorality and corruption. The plain truth is this, at least this is the way it appears to me, and you may disagree. Here's the way I see it. As a Christian, not as anything else, but as a Christian, when 81% of the American evangelical world cast their vote for a twice-divorced man who bragged about groping women, who stands accused of multiple unwanted sexual advances, who has a long record of racist rhetoric and behavior, who routinely spouts profanity, who lies when he finds it convenient, who for years has engaged in unscrupulous business practices, if you listen to people who did business with him, and who claims he has never done anything for which he should seek divine forgiveness. You may remember this. You made that comment. 
when 81% of American evangelicals cast their vote for a man like that, they have discredited the evangelical movement in the eyes of more serious Christians, on the one hand, and in the eyes of the secular world on the other. The plain truth, it seems to me, is this, that in the eyes of much of the larger world, American evangelicalism has become morally bankrupt. In the eyes of many people, and to the extent that we have boarded that evangelical vessel, and especially to the extent that our members align themselves with this president, we all stand to lose. Now let's give you, give you an example. Well, first let me say this. The reason so many evangelical Christians and so many members of the Churches of Christ voted for this man, it seems to me is pretty clear, he promised to protect conservative Christians from the secular and religious left by enacting their two-plank agenda, outlawing abortion and cracking down on the LGBTQ community, especially gay marriage. But to seek to achieve those objectives by embracing a man whose blatantly immoral behavior so completely undermines the church in the eyes of the world is a little bit like using a baseball bat to kill a fly that is rested on someone's head. You may kill the fly, but the price you pay to kill the fly is incalculable. In 1963, I'm going to leave Trump now, go to something else. 1963, in his letter from a Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King Jr. indicted Southern churches, all of us, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, and Churches of Christ, when he wrote that after traveling the length and breadth of the South and observing its many churches, and I'm quoting now, with their lofty spires pointing heavenward, I find myself asking, what kind of people worship here? Who is their God? King leveled that devastating indictment because of the church's determined complicity in the structures of racial oppression and segregation. And it was determined. It was determined and it was complicit. If you don't believe it, go back and read the history. Today, the secular world raises comparable questions about the integrity of the broad evangelical movement in the United States. <coughs> Case in point. In one of its cartoons, Doonesbury, we all know Doonesbury, a comic strip widely read throughout the nation and beyond, satirized evangelical Christians by depicting a pastor reading to his congregation a memo from the Board of Elders. Here's what the memo said. There has been some confusion among evangelicals, the pastor announced, as to what currently constitutes sin in the eyes of the church. So to clarify, we now condone the following conduct. Lewdness, vulgarity, profanity, adultery, and sexual assault. Exemptions to Christian values include greed, bullying, conspiring, 
boasting, lying, cheating, sloth, envy, wrath, gluttony, pride, and others to be arranged. Lastly, we're willing to overlook biblical illiteracy, church non-attendance, and no credible sign of faith. This is the Dewsbury cartoon. One member following the service goes up to the pastor, loving the, loving the lower bar, pastor. Another member, me too, I feel like a freaking saint now. <laughs> pastor, enjoy. <laughs> the question we must raise is this. Where do we go from here? I mean, I've, I've tried to lay out some of the issues. That sort of the, so we've, you've got the postmodern movement, the rejection of the Enlightenment frame of reference upon which our movement is based. The 1960s, the failure to come to terms with the moral issues, the, 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 the recent years, the whole evangelical, the crisis that's descending upon Christianity in general in this country, the mainline evangelicals, and that's us too. So where do we go from here? We have in the history of Churches of Christ, in my view, especially in the lineage that runs from Barton W. Stone to David Lipscomb and beyond, a stunningly biblical heritage to reclaim if we're interested in reclaiming it, and we may not be. It is a heritage of radical discipleship, of serious commitment to the way of the cross. I concluded the first edition of Reclaiming a Heritage with these words. I'm quoting from that first edition. At the very least, we must find some way to connect our history, the story of our life together, to the cross, not just to facts and forms and methods and structures. There are two obstacles, however, that may block our path. In the first place, it may be that we are far too much at home with the world even to contemplate such a shift. That's possible. That may be where we are. I don't know. In that light, the easiest path by far would be to continue our focus on forms and structures and methods. In the second place, we may have so thoroughly abandoned the story of our common life together along with the restoration vision that we are beyond the point of no return. That's possible too. I don't know. If either of these is true, then the handwriting is on the wall. The identity crisis that has plagued this movement for so long will not abate but will only intensify until finally we tell a story that is not our story and our movement is virtually swallowed by one strain or another of the popular religious culture that dominates much of American Christianity today. That's what I wrote in 2002. Now, some 16 years after writing those words, the trajectory I observe then seems essentially unchanged. Far from reclaiming our heritage of radical discipleship, most of us have either ignored or rejected that example, probably ignored it, 
finding it interesting, but quaint. We reject it on the grounds that it does not offer a formula for growing large churches, and indeed it doesn't. That its vision is impractical and unsuitable for the demands of the modern world, and of course that judgment is entirely correct. But to judge the cross for goodness sake by the standards of the modern secular world is to turn one's back on the gospel and to transform our churches into social clubs or perhaps even bastions for political activism of a certain kind legitimated by a veneer of Christian piety. So where do we go from here? For most of us, a headline reading, Can Churches of Christ Be Saved?, was inconceivable. I remember when I first, some of you probably saw that. I remember when I saw it, I thought, what? I was just stunned to read in the Christian Chronicle a headline that says, Can Churches of Christ Be Saved? It was inconceivable because we imagined ourselves the one true church, the whole of Christendom against which the gates of hell could never prevail. But now we find ourselves in a steep decline and undisputable fact that the Christian Chronicle, like any responsible news organization, was duty-bound to report. Indeed, it is entirely possible that churches of Christ cannot be saved that some congregations will continue to dwindle into numerical oblivion, while others will so completely merge into the larger world of American evangelicalism that the very idea of restoration will, come, will become a relic of the past and any semblance of historic churches of Christ will fade and disappear. If we want to avoid that catastrophe, we really have only one choice, it seems to me. In his book, very fine book, The Cruciform Church, some of you know it, Leonard Allen has made this point, this choice, abundantly clear. We must become a people defined by the cross, not by rational argument, not by Bible facts, a people defined by radical discipleship, not by an evangelical movement that so easily conforms itself to the values of American culture, and a people led by the Holy Spirit, not by human reason and self-reliance. So where do we go from here? Exactly three months after publishing its article, can Churches of Christ Be Saved? The Chronicle devoted an entire issue to Christians, members of Churches of Christ, who seek to embody the mission of Jesus and serve as radical ways as his disciples. You may have seen this issue. It was really inspiring. One story documented the creation at Abilene Christian University of the Carl Spain Center on Race Studies and Spiritual Action. 
led by Professor Jerry Taylor, who seeks to encounter the perversive, the pervasive, yes, and perverse, pervasive and perverse reality of white supremacy in the United States with the good news of the gospel of Jesus. This is what Jerry does. Another story documented the work of members of Churches of Christ in many parts of Europe who understand full well that Western civilization is dying, but who have placed their hope in the triumph of the kingdom of God, not the triumph of Western civilization. Armed with that conviction, these people, members of Churches of Christ in Europe, have served thousands and thousands of refugees with food, shelter, and Bible studies and the good news of Jesus. If there is any hope for churches of Christ, it will be found in examples like these. Still in all, in the grand scheme of things, the fate of the churches of Christ, this may surprise you to hear me say this, I think in the grand scheme of things, the fate of the churches of Christ makes very little difference. For the kingdom of God will persist and endure regardless of what we do or fail to do on behalf of the church we love. That great truth should not be a cause for lament. It should be a cause for rejoicing. The only decision we must make is this. Will we stand on the side of God's kingdom? We're going to talk about this tomorrow, what that means. Or will we be found trying our best to shore up a particular religious movement? The future belongs not to the Church of Christ, but to the Kingdom of God, which someday, in God's own time, will triumph over all the earth. And our question is, are we going to stand with that Kingdom, or are we not? Amen. And we have a little time left, and I'd be more than happy to have conversation, questions, uh, wherever you want to go with this. Oh, it's the epilogue, right in the ba very back of the book. Yeah, it's the epilogue. Yep. You were giving definitions in the beginning. Um, so how are you defining the Church of Christ? So the Church of Christ. Yeah. Well, that's a good. There's how are we defining Church of Christ? That's a very good question. How do we define Church of Christ? So I'm defining. I suppose I'm defining it theologically, and looking really to the Alexander Campbell heritage. Alexander Campbell bequeathed a certain way of reading the Scripture. Uh, I mean, we all know there are many versions of the Church of Christ, uh, and. I would have to say that I'm really thinking here primarily of the white churches of Christ, far more than black churches of Christ. Because I think the latter got a sense of what I'm dealing with here far more than the white churches. What else? I, uh, yes, please. I've long. Um, thought and advocated that and I mean no disrespect by this but that my European American churches of Christ are nothing more but a, than apologists 
for the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And having preached at white churches, been the preacher of a white church, and having attended, I've seen that for some time. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to hear at least the dialogue, the discussion, because I think that to, 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 and you go into many of our churches, and the flag is so pro prominent, it's more prominent than, than the cross. And so I'm very pleased to hear us at least have a conversation about that. I think it's relevant. Thank and you. And I'm praying that, that we can begin to, to question and adjust. Thank you. Our, our I don't know if, could you all hear back in the back? Let me, let me repeat what he said. And correct me if I get this wrong. That for many years, he has viewed white churches of Christ in many instances as primarily bastions for Republican politics. And there's truth to that. And often in our churches, the American flag takes supremacy even over the cross. I mean, we've got to think about these things. I mean, we've really got to think deeply about what you're... And it, and it's, if, if you don't mind my saying this, I think sometimes it takes a black brother looking in to see things that we don't see. Can I, can I follow up? You're going to get me pretty emotional here. That's okay. Yeah. When I say things we don't see, this is so crucial. Because we, have, we wear these blinders, and I wear blinders. So let me just tell you a little story. In 2006, I think it was, I published a book called Myths America Lives By. And these were, you know, the myths that I grew up with. You know, America is God's chosen nation. You know, America is uh, the innocent nation. America is a Christian nation. America, the millennial, millennial nation, ushering in the golden age. For America is nature's nation, grounded in the way, the way things were meant. So, in 2011, how many of you know the name James Cone? Okay, some of you do. James Cone is the, perhaps the greatest black theologian of our time. Passed away just recently. Wrote a powerful book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. So I had a, that book came out in 2011. I had a student when I taught at Pepperdine, Raymond Carr, African American, now teaches here at Pepperdine. When Cone's book came, came out, Raymond wanted to put together a session at the American Academy of Religion, the national meeting in Chicago on Cone's book. So he got in touch with Cone, said, can I put together this session? Cone gave it his blessing. Raymond invites three black scholars and me to be on the panel. And of course, I'm not going to say no to Raymond. But as soon as I hung up the phone, I thought to myself, Hughes, what on earth have you done? I mean, really, I mean, you're supposed to say something meaningful about the lynching tree? I mean, white people don't know anything about the lynching tree. We just don't. The black people know all about it, even though the lynching stopped a long time ago. Well, that kind of lynching, okay? So I thought, all I can do, I can't critique this book, but I can tell my story in light of this book. So I talked about how these myths 
had shaped me growing up in West Texas. No one taught them to me. I just absorbed them by osmosis. We all do. And I, got, and I went through these five myths, chosen people, Christian nation, you know. I go back to the, there are like 400 people in the room, you know, mainly African-American scholars, some white scholars. So I go back, sit down at the table with the other panelists, and this very distinguished black scholar named James Noel. I'm sitting by him at the table. Noel leads over to me and he says, Professor, you left out the most important of all the American myths. You just left it out. And I said, what did I leave out? He said, you left out the myth of white supremacy. And I've got, see, I've got to confess to you that when Noel said that to me, I wrote a book on the American myths. <laughs> you know, he tells me I left out the most, and white, he's, he's telling me that white supremacy is the, not just one of the myths, but the most important, the driving myth, the most powerful myth. And it, I, I hear what he says, and I'm thinking, I don't say this to him, but I'm thinking, are you kidding me? You know, but guess what? James Noel planted that seed in my mind. And I've been thinking about it. I began to read. I began to watch. I began to observe. And I concluded, he is exactly right. Yes. So I went back to the University of Illinois Press, and I said, what would you think about doing a second edition of that book? I'd like to revise it in the light of white supremacy, because it's such a timely theme anyway. They said, let's do it. So I wrote an entire chapter on white supremacy and revised every other chapter in light of it. Now here's the other thing I want you to hear, because we're talking about wearing blinders. So I get the manuscript finished. I send the manuscript out to quite a number of readers, some white, some black. One of my white readers is a very good friend, a man who cares deeply about social justice, a man who resists racism. I mean, he's a very good man and lives his Christianity. He lives it. And I have great respect for him. He wrote back and he said, Hughes, he said, I think you're right to have a chapter on white supremacy, but don't make it the driving American myth. It doesn't work. Well, I'd already finished the manuscript. I mean, he's telling me I've got to go back and redo the whole thing. So I'm thinking, whoa, if, is he right? So I sent his comments without his name to my black readers. They were apoplectic. They said, what's he talking about? Of course, I mean, here's what I'm trying to say to you. Black people in this country, we live on entirely different planets. Black people see things we don't see, and you know why we don't see it? Because we don't have to see it. We don't have to see it. I never have to think about this stuff. I get up in the morning, do my work, go by my... Why would I ever once think about white supremacy? Why would I even think about that? Black people have to think about it every single day. It's a reality. And we may want to deny it. You see, this is what I'm talking about. Radical discipleship. How do we, look, Jesus says, 
do unto others, hmm, right, as you would have them do unto you. So if we're going to live that out, we've, we've got to begin to see the world through the eyes of people who are very different from us. And that's not easy. So I've got to listen, listen to what my black brothers and sisters are trying to say. And we heard something just now. It, Could I very crucial. Question Please that. do. The black church is in danger of going out of business too. Mm -hmm. For a different reason. For a different reason. Uh, the reality of radical discipleship that's relevant because in black churches with this church of Christism in which the way that we package the message in which the church becomes the priority and Christ becomes just the side story of it, that makes us in danger. And so that along with the issue of being anti-dialogic about the role of women and other things. Mm -hmm. So these things, so we're, we're in danger of going out. And so this is very relevant to both groups, but just, just for different. But I love the way you frame that. So where, where the church becomes the main story and Jesus becomes the side story. I just think in the way that it's articulated. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I've been challenging mm -hmm. as, I, as I go forward. I'll sort of make a comment on this too, because I, I, my observation is this, this is happening too when you talk about the survival of churches. Uh, they're not disappearing, they're, they're transitioning. Transitioning. So for example, mm -hmm. uh, I can think of a mega church in the Sacramento area that historically was a Southern Baptist church, but no longer, it, it dropped the Baptist name, has a new name, so I'm not sure my guess is the Southern Baptists don't count that anymore. I think, I think over the years we're finding that in churches of Christ as well, even something as basic as the, what we're going to call ourselves, mm -hmm. it, it, the church exists, but it's in a different form. Different form. And I think that's, that's what I see the direction that you're going. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. But it's, you know, it's, it's even in, in the Nashville area. Southern Baptist churches all over Nashville. We'll see Church of the City. Uh, that's one of the church down I mean, all kinds of names. And when you dig a little deeper, you discover all oh, these are, are Baptist churches. But, but you know, so there's this broad evangelical culture. Do you hear what I'm trying to say? There's this broad culture that kind of conforms itself to broadly American values. Let me just tell you a little story. And I'm gonna, we can talk tomorrow about David Lipscomb. Maybe we can... We have a little more time to talk beyond this, but so here's a story. 1872. Now think about 1872. Civil War has been over seven years. We're in the midst of Reconstruction. White Southerners hate, you know, and as you know, they weren't just the Yankees. They were, there's all one word, damn Yankees, right? And they hate them. Because the Yankees came down and they're trying to force equality and, and the whites, you know. Okay, so there's the climate. So 1872, cholera epidemic hits the city of Nashville. And as always happens, when these kind of things hit, they hit the poorest communities hardest, always. And so people with the means to leave Nashville if they had a horse and a buggy or they had a little money to get a train ticket, they're out of there. They're not going to hang around in Nashville and run the risk of getting cholera. They're gone. David Lipscomb could have, could have left too. He wrote an article in the Gospel Advocate addressing this to the Church of Christ. And he said, every person in Nashville who dies from the cholera 
is a reproach on the churches of Christ. Don't leave. And don't just hang around. Get into the city. This, and we're talking inner city, the poorest, blackest sections of Nashville are the sections that are the hardest hit. What does Lipscomb do? Every day, Lipscomb gets his buggy and he picks up two Roman Catholic nuns. David Lipscomb and these nuns go into Nashville. They're not medical doctors. They can't heal these people, but what they can do is comfort them. They can bathe them. They can try to make them more comfortable. They can feed. They can do whatever they can do. To Lipscomb does this every day. And guess what? He got it. He got, it. He got cholera. Yeah, he got it. And he could have died from it. He didn't. You know the story better than I do. Bobby Valentine wrote the book about it. Bobby Valentine and John Mark Hicks. But this is what I'm talking about. You know, the, the kind of... I mean, here's my sense. If we're living our Christianity in those kinds of ways, that's compelling to people. I mean, and you know what? Even if our churches aren't growing the way we... In a way, that doesn't make any difference. You know, the, the thing is to be... We're not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. We're called to take up the cross, to do what we're supposed to do in the world. To, and, you know, if you, if you read what Jesus said, this is what He's telling us. Over and over and again, He tells us this stuff. So, I don't know if we'll be able to save the church of Christ. In a way, it doesn't make any difference. But what does make a difference is, are we going to be serious Christians? Or are we just going to play church? And we keep playing church, we'll go out of business. I'm certain of that. Which is fine. We deserve to go out of business. And if we become serious Christians, we the church of Christ still may go out of business, but it doesn't make any difference. You know, it's it's fine. The, the, the question is, the kingdom of God, are we living, are we conforming to that model of the kingdom of God? So, it's not easy. It, and I can't tell you that I don't present myself as a great example of someone who's you know, living out the way I should. I'm, I don't. Uh, but I work at it, and I could work at it a whole lot harder, I'm sure. So, any other closing comments? Yes, please. Can you uh, discuss the uh, business model for church government versus uh, the Bible's model? I think I know what you're saying. The business model for church government versus the Bible's model. I think what you're saying is so often in our congregations we look for people, for example, as elders. Well, you mentioned Trump. Oh, yeah. The capitalistic right. approach that we've, that many, uh, have. And we pattern our churches after this. Yeah, efficiency. And mm -hmm, efficiency, uh-huh. And, and success. Right. How are we going to? I think the biblical model, it's servanthood. It's, yeah. it's the way of the cross. And, you know, I want to commend, I really want to commend to you James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And the reason I want to bring that up, have you read it by any chance? Yeah. yeah. So the reason I bring that up is because James Cone, see, when I was a kid growing up in San Angelo, Texas, I heard, and I was in a pretty good church, you know, I was in a pretty good Church of Christ and heard some good preaching, but I didn't hear much on the cross. James Cone says when he was growing up in Bearden, Arkansas, at the Macedonia Baptist Church, the cross was the centerpiece of the preaching. 
And he said it was the centerpiece because he said because we as black people identified with the cross. We understood the cross. You know, we were under the cross. Think about the lynching. You know, from 1877 to 1940, you know, thousands of black people were lynched. Just lynched. For what? Look at a white person wrong? You know, not shuffling your feet? I mean, who knows? And, but the specter of lynching hung heavy over every black person. I mean, I mean, you knew. You knew people who were lynched. You had relatives who were lynched. And you knew that if you did something wrong, you could be lynched. So, and Cole makes this point. So, he said, we understood the cross. We got it. We, we, we lived it. We knew what it meant. And, and for that reason, so, and that's why he calls the book The Cross and The Lynching Tree. So the lynching tree, you know, I mean, no one is sinless, of course, but still in all, relatively innocent people were lynched for doing nothing. And here's Jesus who was lynched. Innocent man, lynched. But he says the great irony, and here we are back to perspective. He says the great irony is that the lynching, think about this for a moment, the lynchings were committed, by and large, by white, ready for this? Christians. And we know that because they happened in the Bible Belt. We know that because thousands of people turned out in this, these communities. The Atlanta Constitution would write an article, you know, on Saturday, so-and-so will be lynched in such and such a place. 20,000 people would come out and watch this guy be lynched. Many of those people, the vast majority are Christians. And Cohn says the, the irony is they never saw the irony. They're worshiping the innocent Jesus hung on the cross and they're hanging innocent people on the tree. Never make the connection. Never make... See, and, and again, they don't have to make the connection because they're in power. I don't have to think about this stuff. It's... You know, we, a lot of white people resist the term white privilege. They said, privilege? I work hard for what I get. I'm not, well, that's to miss the whole point. That's not the point. The, the, the point is, I don't have to think about a lot of stuff that black people have to think about simply because of my place in life. That's privilege. And we've got to, we've got to think about stuff like this in our churches and make these connections. And how do we, how do we serve people and enter into their lives in and, and, and truly radical ways? And if we do those kinds of things, maybe the Church of Christ can be saved. But again, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. It's the kingdom of, the kingdom of God's going to endure whether we're with it or whether we're not with it. So we just need to try to stand with the kingdom of God and let the ships fall where they may. Well, time is up, so thank you very much for coming.